for being here with your, with your presence. I think that we worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful. And because he lives, we live. And we praise you that we are being built into a kingdom of priests who offer acceptable sacrifices to you. And so Lord, teach us your ways this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to conclude, as I said, our uh, section here on worship and what the Bible says about, in this particular case, the topic of worship. I have learned a lot about worship. It's amazing how little I know. The more I study, I realize I know almost absolutely nothing. But I want to begin by talking about what I call theology and worship. Uh, it was a few years ago. It could be three years ago for all I know. I can't remember that far back. But uh, Pastor Jason Wickfield was here. And we were sitting in my office before the service and somehow our conversation uh, turned into the topic of worship, and he was lamenting the fact that what so many churches today consider worship is, is not worship um, at all. And since our conversation, I've just kind of, I mean, I've had that thought as a pastor in the back of my mind, but that stuck with me, and so I've noticed that he is not alone in his thoughts. Uh, last year, if he, I wouldn't expect you to, to be aware of this, but some of you may. Um, in July of last year, actually July 12th, there was a Facebook post by a, a Tennessee recording artist and worship leader, Mackenzie Morgan. Did anyone read this? She said something that was interesting. She posted on social media that she can no longer stay silent about what she says are heretical teachings of groups such as Bethel Music, Elevation, and Hillsong Worship. Now let me just say this up front. Raise the Hallelujah was written by Bethel Music, okay? When I, Frank and I are looking for new songs, and you even had me here change the word to some of the songs, um, because the theology was incorrect. Um, but we preview songs to make sure that they are, are at least full of truth. They're, they're, they're so, for the most part, theologically accurate. But she went on to criticize what she dubbed the false teachings in some of today's most popular worship music. And yes, there is plenty of false teaching in the contemporary worship scene. She wrote this, Maybe it's time we start looking at the scriptures to see what God truly calls for in worship and get over what we want. If you notice, a lot of these songs are really feeling-centered. You know, She says, theology matters. I can't even stress that enough. It matters if a song is weak in theology and is not accurately displaying the holiness of our God. Well, not long after she posted that on Facebook, she had over 10,000 shares of that. Uh, another uh, lady by the name of Allison West, she posted this on a website called Discernment Unfolding about her struggles uh, with contemporary worship music and its appeal to our emotions while not being biblically sound. And she had a, 
shared a part of a conversation she had with, with a friend of hers, and she said this, and this is kind of the, the point that I had forgotten about, but uh, it's so true. She said this, here's something to think about. Most people listen to worship music far more than they read their Bibles. Today's worship songs are well done, repetitive, and catchy. Not only are many in the church getting their theology from the songs, but that theology is sticking in their heads far more than any scripture that they might be reading. Why wouldn't the enemy attempt to attack the music of the church? That seems like a pretty easy in to change people's perception of God. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in your heart throughout the day. What songs are you singing? The songs that you're hearing on the radio or that you are singing over and over again the same lines here in a church. And if it contains bad theology, what will happen to how you think? You won't be thinking the most biblically accurate thoughts. Now she wrote this, after having a check in her spirit uh, while singing current worship songs, she decided to compare what she was singing to the scriptures. And she made the decision to no longer listen to songs from Bethel music. We haven't gone that far. There's plenty of good songs from Bethel music, but we do check what we put up here for you. And now, if you think this is a new problem within the church, you would be wrong. Um, the man who discipled me in college uh, told me that one of his seminary professors would begin class by singing a hymn. Now, we're not talking about contemporary music here. We're talking about a hymn, the older songs, okay? And after they would sing the song, which most of them would know, if not by heart, he would then show the students where the hymn was theologically in error. So this has been going on for a while. Now, as we've seen in this series on worship, it is important to worship God in what? An acceptable manner. Well, acceptable worship. Okay, and we worship him. We do that by worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So, a real quick review. What have we learned about worship? Well, Jesus said this, that an hour is coming and now is. And since we are post-resurrection, now is the time when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we have been redeemed so we can worship God, specifically worship God in spirit and in truth. Understanding this, I've, I've stressed the fact that we now realize that the goal of salvation, yes, you're saved, you don't experience the consequences of your sin, hell, okay? But the reason why you were saved is that God is building a, a, a kingdom of people to produce acceptable worshipers of him. And in order to be the kind of worshipers God seeks, we must know what worship is. We must know what unacceptable worship is and what acceptable worship is. In the last three weeks, we have learned that this simple point here is that worship is giving. Remember that? You are giving back to God. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The word ascribe means to give. You could read it this way. Give to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And that in its simplest form is worship. It is giving. We are giving back to God. Okay? Now we come to church, and I grew up thinking this way, at least some point in my church experience, is that I kind of liked the singing because I would get a feeling out of it, right? And I would try and stay awake during a sermon. Right? I did, never knew that I am there to give back to God. And especially if you're in today's church where it's a, uh, uh, maybe an entertainment-centered church, it's, a, it's more of a consumer-centered church or consumer Christianity where you're taking and taking and taking. And if you don't like what you get here, you go somewhere else. You've missed the point completely. Because worship is giving. You're here to give to God, not to get anything from him. You have everything you need from him. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where worship is giving, it is giving honor and respect to God. And then from there we, we then discussed unacceptable worship. And there are four kinds of unacceptable worship found in Scripture. This is the sermon that a lot of people came up to me and said they were really convicted. Okay? There's the worship of false gods. I said some of the false gods include self. There's the worship of wealth and power or the sun or demons, the stars, etc. All of that. Those are false gods. There's the worship of the true God through an image. We do not reduce God to an image. There's the worship of the true God, your way. We talked about how um, Cain brought to God his offering, his way. And it was not acceptable to the Lord. There needed to be a shedding of blood. He was commanded to shed the blood of an animal. I said that today's version of worshiping the true God, your way, is seen what? Do you remember this? It's a result of the COVID-19 pandemic because we now offer online worship, and there are people who now claim that they can worship God at home and don't need fellowship. What has God said about fellowship? Do not forsake the assembling together. It can be it is a habit of some, so it was happening back during the time of Paul, it happens here. Don't do that, that's a command. If you think that way and stay at home, other than the fact that you're sick or just can't get here, you're in direct disobedience to the command of God. Your worship then to God will be unacceptable to him. I cannot say that any clearer than that. All right? You need to be here if you can in some sort of consistent attendance. And then finally we worship the true God with the, with the wrong motive. We're not to worship God with our mouths while our hearts remain far from him. God rejects that hypocritical worship. And then we begin to look at, next in our study, what was acceptable worship. And there were three forms that I kind of basically broken down to this, that we worship God as Father. It means that we worship God relationally, 
personally, but we also worship him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we worship God and Jesus in the fullness of their deity. Jesus said that I and the Father are one. There are plenty of people out there, plenty of churches that say, I love God because he's relational, he's personal, and I worship the Father, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. You can't do that. It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son are the same. That is unacceptable worship to him. God is spirit means that we can worship God anywhere, anytime, and worship becomes a way of life. There is no place you can go on this earth where you can hide from God. He is everywhere all the time, so we can worship him everywhere all the time. And then God's holiness means that he is holy as a spirit, and he is to be worshipped in the beauty of his holiness. And there's a missing aspect to our worship that has been so feeling-centered, and that is the fact that we worship him with a sense of fear and reverence and awe in a spirit of brokenness over our sinful condition because we know that God has every right to discipline us for our unholiness. God, our God, still is a consuming fire. And we worship him with that knowledge. But we're grateful and we come to God with thanksgiving because by his grace we don't experience his discipline for our sin. He holds back his discipline and therefore, understanding that, our, our praise and worship of him is filled with thanksgiving and praise. We are not under the law, thankfully. We are under grace. But we worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, Psalm 96, 9. Tremble before him all the earth. It says. Now, we're going to talk about um, worship in truth, but I wanted to finish up real briefly what it means to worship in spirit. What does Jesus really mean when he says worship God in spirit? Yes, it includes the three forms of worship I just showed you, God is Father, God is Spirit, and God's holiness. But it also means more. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? It means small s in spirit. Well, that refers to the human spirit. So when Jesus says worship in spirit with a small s in spirit, he's referring to your inner person. In other words, you are to worship God from the inside out. Does that make sense? And the unacceptable worship of the Jews, whether the Samaritans and their, their, their pagan worship and the apostate worship of the Jews in Jerusalem, was it was the external, all of the rituals and all of the clothing and all of that stuff, while heart remained at, distant from God. No. We worship from the inside out. We worship from within. For example, you'll recognize this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, within me. There you go, within me. Bless his holy name, Psalm 103.1. You might not know this, but, but Paul writes this in Romans 1.9. For God, whom I serve or worship in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. So you worship inwardly. And even Paul says that his evangelism 
His service of evangelism was worship to God. So Paul worships in his spirit. And we'll get into that later. But listen to this. This is what David wrote in Psalm 51, starting in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, remember this, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. And what's the burnt offering? That's the best animal and it all goes to God. None of it goes to the priest or to the individual. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, inwardly, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this passage kind of sums up nicely my point. David understands that God was never really interested in the external forms of worship. You know, the sacrifices, the offerings, the rituals, the ceremonies, the festivals, all of that. Well, then why all the commands to do the external? Why all those stupid birds making all that noise right now? Right? That's just say that they're worshiping God, right? Amen? Okay, you're awake, good, good. But, you know, why all the commands from God to do these external things? Well, because they were simply symbolic of what God has always wanted. A heart that is broken and contrite over sin. So David asks for what God wants in the very beginning. Open my lips that my mouth that from my mouth I may praise you. You see, since out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, we conclude that David's heart is filled with what? Praise for God. That is worship in spirit. That is worship from the inside out. Now one other point before we move on to worship in truth. It goes without saying that the people who worship God in spirit and in truth are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of a, a, a given, okay? They've been redeemed, and the Holy Spirit dwells within them. But just because you are a believer in Jesus does not guarantee that you will offer God acceptable worship in spirit and in truth, okay? You must be a believer in, I will catch this, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by this I mean you are filled or empowered or controlled with the Holy Spirit. Get your Bibles out real quick. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to show you this. You worship God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And by Lord, we mean that he is not just your Savior, Jesus is your Lord. So he controls you, he empowers you, he fills you. You've surrendered in, to him, you depend upon him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And the reason why this is so important is it is only the Holy Spirit who energizes acceptable worship. Let me show you, Ephesians 5, verse 18 through 20. 
and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or drunkenness, but be filled with the Spirit. Now what happens next? Speaking to one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your inward, right? To the Lord, always giving thanks from the heart for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So you are empowered, filled, controlled, and what happens next? You worship him from the inside out, okay? That praise that comes from you, within you, which didn't happen before you were a believer, but now happens after you're a believer, that is from the Holy Spirit. He is energizing that worship. He is making that happen. Well, why? Because what does God seek? Worshippers. Which, because you have the Holy Spirit, means you know, he's not limited to one location. He's within you. You can worship him then everywhere, all the time, from the inside out. That's how you worship in truth. So if you're going to offer God acceptable worship in spirit, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. For it is only he that points you to God. It's only he that prods you to God. It's only he that pokes you to God. It's only he that pushes you to God so that you may worship God. And that's, that's his ministry. That's what he does. We worship God in the human spirit because we are prompted by the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul can unambiguously state this in Philippians 3, 2 through 3. You can just listen to this. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. That's unbelievers, all of that. Dogs were Gentiles, evil workers, and the false circumcision would have been the, the false religious system. Contrast that, verse 3. For we are the true circumcision. Okay, we're the true believers. It's not a physical circumcision, no. It's a circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit. We are the true circumcision. Now listen to this. Who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, we worship in the Spirit. Believers can worship, and only believers can worship God in spirit. Amen? All right, let's talk about worship and truth. Because we want to worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is so important. And you'll, you'll like, it may be a revelation to you, but then as you explain it, you're going to see, oh yeah, I kind of knew that. I just didn't, maybe didn't pick up on it. All worship, all worship is in response to truth. And I'll show you how this is everywhere. But all worship is in response to truth because worship is a response built upon truth. And let me start with an Old Testament example. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. In the very beginning of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. What you're going to learn is that you cannot worship him in truth if you don't know the truth. Hence, what you need to know in, in, in worship songs need to be theologically 
accurate or sound. Yes, thank you. Genesis 12, look at verse seven and eight. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him, verse eight. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham was given a direct revelation from God in the form of a promise. And what was that? To your descendants, I will give this land. Okay? So what was revealed to Abraham? Truth. Okay? God revealed himself to him. Now watch this. What is Abraham's response, or Abram's response? He called on the name of the Lord. Now what does that mean, to call on the name of the Lord? Well, in its simplest form, it really means he worshiped him. Albert Barnes, the theologian, wrote this, to call on the name of the Lord is to invoke his proper name, which means his, the totality of who he is, all the characters of God, in audible, in social prayer and praise. So you come to him, so to call on the name of the Lord is to approach him in thanksgiving, in worship, in petition, and in so doing, proclaim the name of God. He built a place of worship. It was called an altar. In response to what? Truth. A direct revelation from God. So worship is a response to truth. Now the first point, if we're going to worship him in truth, is this. To offer acceptable worship in truth to God means that our worship is always in response to truth. This is why theology matters. This means that emotional worship is only acceptable if it is in response to truth. I wrote here that there is a lot of emotional worship in the church that is not born out of the truth. And I experienced that growing up in different churches. There was a pattern that in the early days that I, my experience of charismatic churches that some of them I had been in, maybe you're familiar with this, but you know, the, the, the charismatic churches were great with worship, and it was, it was emotional. They were lacking in theology. But there was like this, it was like a, a, a pre-programmed response from the congregation. They would sing these songs, and they were contemporary worship songs, and there was a lot of, of, of emotion. All right? And then I would watch the lifestyles of the people over months, and knew it was fake. They would be crying. There'd be emotions. I mean, you probably experienced something like that. Maybe you have. But I mean, what was their worship then? If it wasn't in a response to truth, it was just emotionalism. And I'm all for emotional, heartfelt worship, but I've witnessed feeling-centered worship. It just wasn't genuine. And now I can say it wasn't acceptable to God because God wants you to worship in spirit from the inside out, all right? And he's looking at your heart. If you're not honor him with your mouth, but deny him by your lifestyle, that's not acceptable. 
In Nehemiah, we find another example. When Ezra, remember this, the scribe, he stood and read the book of the law of Moses to all of the people. What was their response? Well, Nehemiah 8, chapter 6 says this. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. Now, again, this is a response to hearing the word of God read to them, which hadn't been read to them for some time. While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, the proclamation of truth in the public reading of the word of God brought them all to their knees in an act of worship. Worship is in response to truth. And perhaps Psalm 47.7 sums up most succinctly, better than I could even sum it up. And it simply says this, Psalm 47.7, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with understanding. Sing praises with understanding. I'm assuming that some of you have, you know, have experienced, if not everyone here has, you've read your Bible and you discover something new about God and it's a new truth. And then what happens after that? Oftentimes you are praising God for this new revelation, right? But what is that? Worship in spirit and in truth. Exactly. So worship in spirit and truth starts within. This is where truth must reside, in the heart of a child of God who comprehends the truth of God and from his heart worships with his mouth. This same pattern is found in the New Testament. Jesus proclaimed that the word of God is truth. Remember that? Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Or your word is truth. That's John 17, 17. And so it stands to reason that the more I know the Bible, the more I will know what? You can say it. Truth. Yeah. Well, how do I know more truth? Well, here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road. You must be willing to become a student of the Word of God. Spending time digging into the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God. It is then you discover new truths about God that will result of worshiping Him in truth. So worship in truth is nothing more than a flowing over of the discovery and the meditation of the truth. In the early church, they worshiped and used songs and hymns and spiritual songs mixed in times of praise and thanksgiving. We know this because of what Colossians 3.16 says. I think I put this up here for you. There's Psalm 47.7. Look at this. What's it say? Read it out loud. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What precedes the worship? This is easy. You could just read it. What precedes the worship? It's, it's the word of Christ richly dwelling in you. Yeah. All worship is in response to truth. truth. 
Are you getting the point? I keep making this over and over and over again. If you want to worship him acceptably, and I want you to worship him acceptably, then you need to worship him in spirit, inwardly, and in truth. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. In other words, be abundantly filled to overflowing with the word of God, which is truth. And please see that when the word or the truth dominates you, then your praise is directed. You see that? Your worship is now conformed to God's standard. This is why the worship of the true God by the Samaritans, remember that story? They had an incomplete understanding of God. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. And therefore their worship was incomplete, it wasn't in truth, and so God didn't accept their worship. But I want to show you even a better way how to worship him in truth. It's called the believer's supreme act of worship. And this is where the sermon may get a little convicting. Now, in the Old Testament, the people worshiped God how? Well, they brought animal sacrifices to the priest and with them offered them to God on the altar. That system of worship is now over. It is gone. So what do we now offer God in our worship? Now, Peter gives us a, some clues. Did I put this up here? I don't think I did. 1 Peter 2, 5? No. I can put this up there. It says, you also as living stones, 1 Peter 2, 5, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, and here's the key word, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's using the language of worship in this passage. We can plainly see that believers in Jesus Christ are the new priesthood. And since we are spiritual priests, we can offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So the question is, well, obviously, there is a spiritual sacrifice that we can offer to God that is acceptable to him. What is that acceptable spiritual sacrifice that you and I can offer to God? And Paul helps us to figure it out here. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has written what many theologians consider to be the constitution of the Christian faith. I mean, there may be no other book in the New Testament full of more theology than the book of Romans. He has eloquently laid out rich Christian doctrine. But in chapter 12, Paul's now ready to move on from doctrine, what we know, to our duty, what we're to do. But before we do, he reminds us of doctrine using the phrase, the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Well, this is what he's talked about here. Just as a sample of some of those things that are the mercies of God in Romans. Love. You've been given love. The love of God is shed abroad in your hearts. That's a mercy from God. It's a mercy gift. You've been given grace. The Holy Spirit is a mercy gift to you. 
Hope is a mercy gift to you. And by the way, you know what a mercy gift is? You don't deserve it. So out of his mercy, extreme mercy, he is giving us more than this, but this is just some of the things that we see in, in Romans. He gave you eternal life. You don't deserve it. He gave you security in this life and in the life to come. He made you a son or daughter. You don't deserve that. That's a mercy gift. So those are the mercies of God. And I haven't even mentioned glory and honor and righteousness and forgiveness and reconciliation and justification, all things that God has given you. Now, in light of all that God has done for us, the only logical response is laid out in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we just read. And so what is our logical, reasonable response? What is the spiritual sacrifice that we as spiritual priests can now offer to God that is acceptable to him? And it's really simple, but it's hard. The primary sacrifice we are called to offer is ourselves. Folks, God doesn't want your talents. I mean, he owns everything. Do you think he wants your money? He wants your charismatic personality? He doesn't want your possessions. He wants you. He wants you. Let me show you what this looks like to offer yourself. Let's go back here. Turn to Romans chapter 12 if you haven't turned there already. You're going to need to be there. Leave it here. Therefore, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. The word therefore means he's looking back to all that he has talked about in those first 11 chapters. And he is pleading with the people now. I urge, I plead, I beg, I beseech. Brethren, by the mercies of God. We know what the mercies of God are. But Paul calls the Romans he is writing to what? Brethren. Meaning they're already Christians. They're believers in Jesus Christ. And this is important to understand because what Paul is about to ask them to do in light of these extreme mercies of God, it cannot be done with any other power other than the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just too difficult. Now since unbelievers do not have the Holy Spirit, they don't have the power or the desire to follow God's command as written here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So this is written to believers. And every believer is one who has offered to God his corrupt spirit or soul and then in exchange received a redeemed soul, a redeemed spirit. So the first offering to God is a redeemed spirit. That's when you're saved. You say, God, I'm fallen, I'm corrupt. I can't earn your favor. I need your grace, I need your mercy. Give me your son's righteousness. Redeem my spirit, and that's what God does. Paul then introduces the second part of ourselves we offer to God as an acceptable spiritual sacrifice. It goes like this. 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. We offer God a living and holy body. Now, in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifice of a dead animal, we offer a living. Now, what does that mean? It's a perpetual or a continual sacrifice. In other words, this is a call to a dedicated holy life. And it is the only, now mind you, is the only logical response or conclusion to redemption. Well, how do we offer our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice? Well, the first point is tied to the word present or offer. That's a temple term and carries with the idea of a surrendering up or of yielding. So in other words, I am to submit or yield my body in a holy manner. And since the body is that which contains our fallen nature, okay, it, that's, that's where in our body sin resides. You know that from experience. It's explained best, I believe, in Romans chapter six. Just listen to this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your, remember this, mortal body, so you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting, there's the word again, or offering, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So within our body, not our spirit anymore, but our body is what? Sin resides. And since sin no longer reigns in your spirit or your soul, it's been redeemed, sin should no longer reign in your body. Well, how do we prevent sin from reigning in our body so that we offer to God a continual and wholly acceptable spiritual sacrifice? Well, the first step is this. You gotta know the truth. And what's the truth? Well, Romans 6, 5, and 7 says this, and this is the truth. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now watch this, verse 6. Knowing this, what do I know? That my old self, our old self, the old sinful nature, was what? Crucified with him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. See, it's the body that has the sin. That need to be done away with. We know that this has taken place the moment we were saved. So that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You're gonna offer up a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice, that is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. You have to know that truth. You've been crucified with Christ. Let me make, explain it this way. There's a cross. Here is your body of sin. It's been crucified. That's where it is. You have a new nature. You are now free to go around and do what you, to serve and worship whoever you want to. But by habit, oftentimes we go back to sin and let it reign in our bodies. You don't have to do that anymore. You know that you are free. It's like you are a, 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 a sailor on a ship and the first mate, Jesus, started a, a mutiny and took down the captain. And the captain is now 
in the prison on the boat or in the ship. And you're there doing your work and the captain tells you to do something. Even though you're free and you're following the first mate, Jesus, you do what the captain says. Well, why? Habit. You're used to that. No, you no longer control me anymore. I'm dead to that. I've died to that. When he died, when Jesus Christ died, who else died? You did. You are free. Know that. That's how you offer a holy body to God. And that means the second thing we do is we choose. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves. No, consider to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to put to death continually the old self through our informed choices, through our knowledge. And it's perhaps best said by Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, you know the verse, right? But Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered himself up for me. There must be a continual, daily death to self. You must die. And so all of the junk that you get in the Christian bookstores, but a self-help section, give me a break. You kill that self. You hate that self. I don't want you to have a good self-esteem. I want you to hate that self, and I want you to embrace who you are in Jesus Christ and live that out. That's how you offer a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. Watchman Nee wrote this, and I love this, in his book, The Normal Christian Life. I love that, that title, The Normal Christian Life. Okay? And, you wanna, and it, I'm, you've heard this before, I'm going to remind you of it. He says, I always like to think of the words of the great woman of Shunem, speaking of the prophet whom she had observed but whom she did not know well, she said, behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passed by us continually. That's 2 Kings 4.9. It was not what Elijah said or did that conveyed that impression, but what he was. What he was. By his merely passing by, she could detect something. She could see. What are people seeing about us? We may leave many kinds of impressions. We may leave the impression that we are clever, that we are gifted, that we are this or that or the other. But no, the impression left by Elijah was an impression of God himself. He then writes this. He says, This matter of our impact upon others turns upon one thing, and that is the working of the cross in us with regard to the pleasure of the heart of God. It demands that I seek his pleasure, that I seek to satisfy him only, and I do not mind how much it costs me to do so. 
There must be something, a willingness to yield, a breaking and a pouring out of everything to him, which gives release to that fragrance of Christ and produces in other lives an awareness of need, drawing them out and on to know the Lord. Because this is what I feel to be the heart of everything. The gospel has as its one object the producing in us sinners of a condition that will satisfy the heart of our God. In order that we may have that, we come to him with all that we have, all that we are, yes, even the most cherished things in our spiritual experience, and we make known to him, Lord, I am willing to let go all of this for you. Not just for your work, not for your children, not for anything else, but for yourself. And he closes with this. Oh, to be wasted is a blessed thing to be wasted for the Lord. So we offer God a living sacrifice, a continual holy body. And I've shown you how that is done. It's through the daily dying to self. But tied to that, is the third part of ourselves, because it's the, we've offered the spirit, we've offered the, whole, the body, now we offer our mind as part of an acceptable spiritual sacrifice, namely a renewed mind. And do not be conformed to this world, you see that? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind must be presented for renewal. You don't just offer your spirit, you don't just offer your body, you also have to offer your mind. Well, how do we do that? Well, first, Paul starts out with a negative. Don't be conformed to the fallen, unredeemed philosophies of this world. And you know from experience that the ways of the world have a, a sneaking way, a subtle way, without you even knowing it, of forming you, of changing you, of transforming you. It says, don't do that. It literally reads, stop allowing yourselves to be fashioned like this evil age. In other words, don't masquerade as if you belong to the world. It is inconsistent with what's really in you, which, what is in you now, a redeemed spirit that desires to please God. Ken West said it this way, stop assuming an outward expression which is patterned after the age, an expression which does not come with, from within, nor is representative of what you are in your inner being as a regenerated child of God. That's the negative, now the positive. You're to be transformed on the outside to match what your redeemed self is on the inside through a renewed mind. So your lifestyle matches who you are on the inside. So how do I renew my mind? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Fill yourself with the word of God. Maintain a constant preoccupation with the word of God. And with my mind, I consider myself, I know, I am dead to sin and alive to God, and therefore I choose holiness. And finally, Paul introduces the fourth part of ourselves. We offer to God as an acceptable spiritual sacrifice. That is a submissive will. So that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're talking about offering to God your entire self, 
your spirit, your body, your mind, and your will. That makes up the entire person. And you're to offer all of yourself to him. Present the will to God. Because when we've presented the soul and the body and the mind, then we can approve what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We will give our will up. And we will say, your good and your perfect will I approve, Father. I don't care where I live. I don't care what I possess. I don't care what I deeply love. What I care about is that your will be done in my life. And folks, that will never happen unless you have a renewed mind. Because the renewed mind leads to the holy body. I mean, you've already offered the spirit, but you, the mind leads to the body, which then leads to the will. Because as the mind knows and the body submits, then the desires change and then the will can be offered. Does that make sense? A renewed mind will be expressed in a submissive will and in a body presented as a living sacrifice. See, it all comes in one package. You can't present your body unless you have a renewed mind because you won't have the will to do that. But when you have a renewed mind, you'll be submissive to God. You offer your body as a living sacrifice. You say, do I do this once in my life? No. You do it every waking moment. It's a conscious, renewing act. Over time, you will learn you never need to fear the will of God because it doesn't matter. What do you desire? God's will. Because it's good, you see? It's acceptable. It's perfect. So the renewed mind, the submissive will, and the consecrated body go along with the redeemed soul. Now watch this. This living sacrifice, the surrender of the entire self, spirit, body, mind, and will, in a humble, submissive act to God, folks, that is the basis of true worship. Look at 12.1 again. Which is your spiritual act of worship? You see that? This is how it all ties together. So once again, we see the same pattern. Worship is in response to truth. We are given the truth. That's the first 11 chapters of Romans. We respond in worship. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. You see, what we have limited worship to in our understanding is this time here. Or even, it's not even listening to the sermon, it's the song singing that we do, right? No. What is acceptable worship to God? Well, to worship in spirit means I worship him anywhere or everywhere all the time. It's a lifestyle. And then it's a holy worship. It's according to the word of God. It is the offering of your entire self in a holy manner, day by day, moment by moment, where I offer him my entire self. It is a life of holy worship. You want to worship him in an acceptable manner? That's how you do it. And that is not easy to do. It is not easy to do. 
We must worship him in spirit, that is from the heart with love, and in truth, according to the word of God. Amen? So, worship God in truth. Worship is in response to truth. Let me pray, and we'll close this service. Lord, as we close this time, I want to thank you for your words to us. It is a hard word at times, but we want to worship you in spirit and truth. We know that you are seeking worshipers. We want to please you and offer you acceptable worship. May teach us how to worship you in our individual lives and in all the nuances and all the, the personal circumstances how to worship you in spirit and in truth. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great Sunday. Enjoy the weather. God bless you.